So we are looking in this section of Luke chapter 6 at what is called um, biblically the Sermon on the Plain. And what that is is really an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount that was given by Jesus in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That is the most famous sermon that Jesus gave there. And this sermon that Luke records is given in a different place, probably in a similar time span, but it's a different sermon than the one that was given in Matthew. Now, though it's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, what it really should be called in both places is the Sermon on the Kingdom, because that's really what it is. It's not Jesus talking about a mount or a plain. It's Jesus giving to us kingdom principles. And what this sermon and the one in Matthew, its counterpart, does is that it sets forth a spiritual current of life that reflects the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is revealing to the multitudes of his disciples that he is teaching as he's giving the sermon is that there is a, a parallel vein of reality and existence that exists coinciding with the present reality that we live in in this world, but that it is altogether different than what we operate in within uh, this world. And so we see that it is exactly the opposite of what this world teaches and the way this world works. There's a current of the kingdom that exists. And it's that current that Jesus is explaining uh, in these sermons. Now, the Sermon on the Plain given in Luke is really broken down into four parts. And you could subdivide it maybe a little bit differently. But basically, what Jesus does in this sermon is that, first of all, he gives to us the recipe for a blessed life. It's the portion that's known as the Beatitudes, or the attitudes that bring blessing upon the life of a child of God. The second part, portion, is not the blessed life, but the useful life. That is the mindset and the relationship mindset that we have with others that make us a representation of God to the world that we live in. That's the portion that we looked at last week, where Jesus said to love your enemies, bless those that curse you, you know, the easy stuff of the Christian life. All that stuff that we so much like to hear. But where we resume tonight as we finish this sermon, we look at the last segments that Jesus gives, and he gives to us really a word to those that lead and also to those that follow. And then he closes the sermon by talking about the foundation upon which we should build our lives. And so as we pick up in verse 39, he gives a word, first of all, to those that lead. And so if you would read with me from verse 39. It says that he spoke a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote or the sliver that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam or the telephone pole that is in your own eye? Either how can you say to your brother, brother, let me pull out the sliver that is in your eye when you yourself behold not the beam that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of your own eye and then you shall see clearly to pull out the mote 
or the sliver that is in your brother's eye. One of the main objectives of Jesus' ministry while he was here presently upon the earth was to reveal a path that exists that leads to the kingdom of heaven. It's a path that he called in Matthew a narrow path that leads to life, that was difficult and there were few that would find it. It is narrow and it is difficult, but it is also certain and it is also true. And the fact is that everyone who finds that path and walks on that narrow path that leads to life is always both following somebody and leading somebody. See, it's a very narrow way. And it doesn't often allow for everyone to just walk side by side. There's a leading and a following on the spiritual path that leads to life. Now, gathered in the audience that Jesus is addressing here in this chapter are, first of all, the future apostles, those that would become the foundational pillars of government for his kingdom as he would establish his church upon the earth. Also present there are mothers and fathers, heads of household, and those that lead families and lead children. Amongst them also, we find out there are scribes and rulers of the Jews, those that have governing places of authority within Israel that have a responsibility to lead. There are also those that have part in industry within Israel in those days, uh, the fishing industry and the various commerce that was done among them. And there are those that lead within that capacity amongst those that are listening to Jesus. We also learn that there are Romans, Roman centurions and soldiers that had heard of Christ and put their faith in him, and they were leaders as well. They were peacekeepers, the officers of their day. And so there were many, in fact all, that were in that audience that to some capacity had some form of leadership for others. Now, when it comes to the kingdom of God, no matter what sphere of life you and I find ourselves in, all of us are leading somebody. To some degree, in some way, someone is watching our lives and taking their spiritual cues based upon what they see in us. So what does Jesus have to say to those of us that lead and all of us lead? What makes someone a good leader? A couple of things that he says right here in this little parable and then the explanation that he gives. Very simple, practical. First of all, if you want to be a successful leader for the Lord, you have to be able to see the path that you're on. Notice what Jesus says. He opens by saying, can the blind lead the blind? And that's an obvious paradox. I mean, you wouldn't go on a tour and, and want to be led somewhere or get in an airplane being flown somewhere where the pilot or the guide was blind. You would be stupid to do that, because you certainly wouldn't get where you were going. You'd probably end up lost or dead, depending on the severity of the scene. The blind cannot lead the blind, and he says that both then will fall into the ditch. Now, the blindness that Jesus is talking about, and the sight that's contrasted with that blindness, is not a physical sight. He, he wasn't saying that our eyes don't work in the physical sense, but rather what he's addressing here is that there is a spiritual sight, a spiritual ability to see or to have vision that is necessary if we're going to be successfully leading people in this path or in this way of life as we ourselves also are in it. In the ninth chapter of John, the story is told about a blind man who is miraculously healed by Jesus. 
And because of the controversy that was stirred up over Jesus' healing of this blind man, the Pharisees were giving him, the blind man that could now see, a hard time. And they were asking him about Jesus. They were saying, who is this man? Is he a sinner? And they were kind of interrogating this man who had just been healed. He's seeing for the first time. And the man looked at them and he said, I don't know who the guy is. I know he spit on some mud and now I can see. I was blind, now I can see. What gives? And Jesus responds to that controversy and conversation that was going on. And he says that for judgment, I have come into the world that those that are blind might see and that those that have their sight might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees heard that statement and they inquired of Jesus concerning it. And they asked him the question. They said, are we blind also? And Jesus answered it by saying that because you say you see, you're blind. You know, what he was talking about there was a spiritual sight. They were supposed to be those that were leading when, in fact, they were those, in fact, that couldn't see the sign or the path at all. They were totally blind. Now, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians, prayed for believers. And this is what he prayed for believers in Ephesians chapter 1. He said this. He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, the sight that we receive or that those that know God have is not a physical sight, but it's what Paul calls the eyes of your understanding. It's being able to see something that is spiritual, something that's invisible. And when you're born again and the Spirit of God comes into your life, you're given the ability to see. Again, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was talking to the Christians there. And he explained to them that spiritual things must be spiritually known. And he says to them that nobody knows the things that are in a man's heart except for the man himself. So likewise, no one knows the things that are in God's heart except for God himself. And then he said this, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God in ourselves so that we might know the things that have freely been given to us by God. The natural man, that is the unsaved man, cannot receive the things of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have, Paul said, the mind of Christ that we might know the things that have freely been given to us by God. That's the heritage of you and I that are in Christ. Our eyes have been opened. The Spirit of God lives inside of us, and thus we can see something that previously we could not see. It isn't as though we're physically watching angels fly around and we see, you know, spiritual manifestations happen. That's not it at all. But we understand in our spirit the old life that we used to live. And we now see the new life that we've been given. We understood the track that we were on when we were on the broad path that led to destruction. And now we operate and live on the new path that leads to life. And we see the contrast between the two and it makes sense to us. And you know what it was like. I remember as a new believer being able to see for the first time. And thinking that everyone else could see what I would see. And I would talk to family members and people that went to church even. And I would say, hey, the things of God. And I would share with them. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. 
because there was an understanding that was imparted. That's the heritage of those that know God, that they are able to see. You cannot lead unless you're able to see the path that you're on. We used to not know, and now we do know. And so if we're to lead, we must be born again in such a way that we can see the path that we are on. The second thing that Jesus mentions concerns the understanding that if we're on the path, and if you are on the path, then you'll understand the destination. Notice what he says in verse 40. He says, The disciple is not above his master, but everyone who is perfect shall be as his master. Now, in the kingdom of God, the destination where we are headed as we walk this path is not a place, but rather it's a person. What we're headed towards is Christ-likeness. He's working in us and forming Jesus in us so that we could be like him. Now, the disciple is the learner or the pupil. The master is the teacher. And perfection equals our becoming like the one that we are following. And so the goal for every one of us in the faith is Christ-likeness. That's where we're headed for. That's the destination. That's what we want. Now, when we understand that, what that does is that it puts every single one of us on a very level playing field because we all have the same goal. Whether we're leading, whether we're following, we're all going the same direction. See, our goal is not to become like a human teacher or a human pastor. Our goal is to become like our heavenly father and our savior. That's where we're headed. And so leadership kind of takes on a whole new dimension when we look at it in that way. We're following Christ. And so our goal is Christ and our eyes are on Christ. Now the warning in this is that if our eyes are too much upon a human leader or a person, then we could never grow beyond the capacity of that human being. The disciple can never exceed his master, but it's enough that he be as his master. So if we're following a human And that's our goal. We put someone up and we say, that's what I want my faith to look like. Then you're short-circuiting yourself by light years because you'll never go any further than that person is. But if your eyes are on Christ and that's your goal and you're following him, then you can actually surpass someone that at one point in your life you were following because your goal is to become like Jesus Christ. Now, here's what happens sometimes in the body of Christ. And it happens most often with new believers is that they'll put a pastor or a preacher or a spiritual leader up on a pedestal and they'll make that their goal, that's their aim, and they'll set their eyes on it. Now God, who's to be the goal and who purchased that person, he doesn't like that because he doesn't want a man to be the goal of any other person. And so what he does is that he will allow that person to fail the person whose eyes are on them. They'll pray for them and the prayer won't be answered. Or in some way, they'll let them down or disappoint them. Or there'll be something that will happen. They'll say, well, I thought that you were, but you weren't. No, you weren't. They weren't. He is. And the goal of that and why God will allow that disappointment to take place is because our eyes are never to be upon a human leader. Yeah, we follow. Yes, we have examples. Yes, there are patterns. But ultimately, eyes are on Jesus. And he's the one that we relate to. There are... No priests in the New Testament. The Bible says that there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So often, people want a priest. A priest is basically a representation of God on the earth. 
But God doesn't do that in the New Testament. Jesus is our priest. That's where our eyes go. And so successful leadership continually points people not to themselves, but rather to the destination. And so as we are leading, we're encouraging people to look at Christ, to go to Christ. And thus, the third thing that Jesus gives to us concerning leadership is that there must be sincerity in it and in us. Notice uh, what he says again in verse 41 and 42 when he gives this parable about the moat or the sliver and the beam. Now, the purpose of that parable is all about hypocrisy. He talks about the one who has a telephone pole in his eye and then he sees a sliver in his brother or sister's eye and says, hey, you've got a sliver in your eye. Let me help you with that. And Jesus calls that person a hypocrite. He says, you've got your own problems in your life and you're looking at the problems in everyone else's life thinking that you're the answer for their problems. And what that is, is that is hypocrisy. And there's nothing more damaging in the body of Christ or in this kingdom or in this walk or in this way than hypocrisy. That is to to, to make ourselves out to be something more than what we are. Now, the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection but rather it's sincerity or honesty. It's letting what we are be known because it's what we are. The fact of the matter is that every single one of us, when we come to Jesus Christ, we all have telephone poles in our eyes. Every one of us. There's not one of us that gets saved and boom, it's all cleared up. All of our sins are gone. There's no issues. We see all things clearly. All of us have issues. And God begins a process in our life from that moment of clearing those things out. And he does it one at a time, little by little, sometimes half a pole at a time. And he's, and he's sanctifying us. He's moving, he's removing things and changing. And then he's revealing new things. Like we thought we were all good. And oh wait, there's another telephone pole. There it is. I just knocked someone over with it when I turned around too fast, you know. And we have these things uh, th- that go on inside of it. But God removes those things from our lives as we walk with him. And then here's what happens is that those former things that are no longer a part of our life, they become a part of our testimony. This is what God has done for me. He took this out of my life. And so we don't have to go around and look for people that have that similar telephone pole in their own eye, but rather they'll come to us because they hear about what God's done in our lives. And so they come and they say, hey, I've got a sliver in my eye. What do you know about this? I've heard that this was something that you used to struggle with. And the person who's had that telephone pole then removed from their eye can give real insight to the person who's struggling with the sliver or struggling with the same thing. Because it isn't about the legal process of, well, you've got to do this and do that. But rather, they've experienced Christ's freedom And they understand what's really behind all of those things. And they're able to give genuine insight. And there's a sincerity in their sharing that isn't passing judgment, but rather it's giving freedom. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. It's what God intended. One of the sure signs that somebody is spiritually blind is when they have a critical or fault-finding spirit. This thing of having the telephone pole and going around and pointing out the sins of everybody else. That is a a sure sign that someone has yet to be really set free by Christ. Do you realize that the sin of passing judgment on someone else because of something that they're struggling with or fault-finding or gossiping or having a critical spirit, do you realize that that is even worse than the sin that you're pointing out? I mean, really, think about it for just one minute. 
If there was a cancer cell in your body, and I mean that's going to kill you if it continues to grow and it's there. And let's say that there was a healthy, normal blood cell that was passing by that tumor and noticed it and said, oh my goodness, look at this tumor. This has got to go. This is ridiculous. Don't you realize? And that red blood cell, if it went to another part of the body and spread what it saw, it would be spreading that cancer to another place. And that's exactly what happens when someone in the body of Christ looks at someone else's life, sees their sin, and then goes and tells someone else about it. They find fault, and then they share it. They might not even struggle with that sin, but they've just become a carrier of a cancer, and they've spread something around that should be removed completely. And so to find fault and to you know, be the telephone pole uh, you know, carrier and, and wield people with your beam and all the rest, to hide imperfection behind instruction or self-righteousness is counterproductive to the cause of Christ. And so let God, who's the one who removes the beam, remove the beam within our lives. And then we'll see clearly to do it to others. There must be sincerity. So concerning leadership, there must be an understanding of the path, a knowledge of the destination to be like Christ, and thus there also must be a sincerity. Then he talks to those uh, that follow um, in the body of Christ in verse 43. Notice what he says. He says, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of bramble bushes gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaks. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? I love how Jesus just points out obvious facts of the things that are all around us every day, and then he draws deep spiritual truth from them. He says, look at that tree. He points maybe to an apple tree or a fig tree. And he says, how ridiculous would it be if someone tried to harvest thorns from that fig tree? Or perhaps there was a bramble bush, a thorn bush nearby. And he said, how ridiculous would it be if someone tried to tell you that that was a grape tree? Because you know that it's not. It doesn't bear grapes. Even so, as you're examining someone's life and figuring out who you're going to follow, understand this, is that there will be evidence within their life that you are following someone who's worthy of their, their fruit. There are only two people in the whole world that don't follow someone. One of them is God. I guess I, I, I'm in error because he's not really a person. you know. The other one is the absolute fool who thinks that they've got all the answers and that they don't need to follow anyone. They can just do whatever they want and they're the captain of their own ship and they're going to make it somehow. That's a, a total fool. Everyone else, and especially in the body of Christ, we all follow someone. Jesus looked at Peter, who was the chief of the apostles, so to speak. And what did he say to him? He said, Peter... Follow me. Peter was called to follow Jesus. The apostle Paul gave commandments to the church and he said, be followers of those who have spiritual oversight over you. He wrote to Timothy and he said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, that make sure that your life is marked by a constant immersing of yourselves in the scriptures so that your profiting might appear to those whom you're leading. Because everyone in the body of Christ is following the faith of someone in some regard 
so that we can grow together and go together where it is that God is ultimately leading us. So in that, we all follow someone. There is both a benefit and there's a risk. There's a benefit if the person or the people that we're following are truly walking on the path and are truly following Christ and leading us to a greater maturity. The risk is if they're frauds and if they're charlatans and if they're spiritual phonies, because then we're following someone and the example that we're receiving is ultimately uh, an example of falsehood or something that's going to lead to less. Doesn't it seem that there are less and less faithful leaders in the body of Christ today? It just seems that every day or every week that goes by, you hear about another scandal that takes place amongst a prominent uh, name within the kingdom, someone who's uh, you know, been in the ministry for so long, and it turns out that they were uh, in it for the wrong reason, or they were doing something, or some many things <laughs> that they weren't supposed to be doing. And, and it just seems like one after the next, it seems like there's more and more uh, people that are falling by the wayside um, and that are exposed, that they were phonies, they're not really real. So how do we recognize it so that we don't fall prey to following someone who's a fraud? That's what Jesus is giving to us here. He basically says, first of all, look at the fruit that's in their life. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lays out very clearly the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. He, He says to the Galatians, he says that the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of things, or of which I, uh, um, the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And when that's the fruit that's coming out of someone's life, it's very evident. You can see it. You can see that, that's, that there's some corruptness that's in them. But then he goes on and he gives the other side of it. He says in verse 22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And you can discern the quality of somebody's faith in their walk with Christ based upon the kind of fruit that's coming out of their life. Are they a bitter person? Are they an envious person? Are they a a pleasure seeker? Are they a greedy person, a money lover? And you evaluate based upon what's coming out of their life and what's important to them, or are they a God lover? Is there love coming out of their life? Is there a genuineness uh, to them, a joy? Is there a peace and a serenity within their life? Are they walking the walk? Is there something that's, that's sincere about what they're doing? You will know them by their fruit. Jesus says, are they like Christ? The second thing that Jesus says that you can discern them by is by their words. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That what's really going on on the inside will be manifested on the outside based upon the things that they say. In 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John uh, talks and he, and he says there, um, I didn't mark it, so now i got to find it. Here it is, 1 John 1. He says this, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, 
For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. For John, he would say, hey, the, the thing that we have touched and handled and breathed and has become assimilated part of our character, that's what comes out of our heart and out of our life. And when someone is speaking of Jesus and speaking of his truth and his kingdom is upon their lips, it's an evidence, it can be an evidence, that they're walking in the right way. But when what comes out of their mouth is constantly worldly things, or constantly things concerning ambitious things, or whatever the case might be, then that can be also an indication that that person isn't walking the way that they should be. Jesus says that that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. And then he says where our heart is, is what our words are going to also reflect. And then the third thing is to notice their behavior in verse 46. He says to them in verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say. And so you look at someone's life and they're not walking according to the principles that God has laid forth in his word. Their life is contrary to what God says a life in him should look like. And that should be for us a sure sign that something's not right. There is so much warning in the New Testament about false teachers. You read Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus said, In the last days there will be many false prophets and false teachers that will arise and come on the scene. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, when he met with the elders for the last time, he wept and he said to them, Understand that after my departure, grievous wolves will come in and they won't spare the flock. Understand that they're in it for the wrong reasons and you've got to be sharp and discerning. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, In the last days, there will be a spirit within people that will have itching ears, and they'll heap to themselves false teachers that will bring in doctrines of demons, and it'll be rampant in the last days. 2 Peter chapter 2, the book of Jude, they're almost identical, warning the church to be aware of those that are false teachers. And there are many false teachers within the body of Christ today. So how can we be on guard against all of these things? And here's how. Is that when someone is worthy of following, then there should be a perfect alignment between you and them and Jesus. Is that you should be able to look at the life of Christ that's manifested in the word of God, and you should be able to see within his silhouette the form and shape of that person who you're following. And if there's a part of their life that's out of alignment from that, then let that be a warning flag to you. I get people that ask me all the time about TV preachers. What do you think of this one? What do you think of this one who lives in an $8 million house? What do you think of this one who says great things and is very encouraging, but, and there's always a but. And I'll say, here's what I say. Here's what I, I'll never say, you know, condemned. But what I will say is this. Are they in line? Is there an alignment between where you are following Christ, what you see in him, and where they are? And if there's some, even one area where they're offline, then let that be for you a check. It doesn't mean that you necessarily write them off completely, but let it be a check. Are they really walking with the Lord? Well, he goes on um, and he talks about now where we should build our lives. He says in verse 47 as he closes the sermon, he says, whosoever comes to me 
and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and he dug deep and he laid the foundation upon a rock. And when the flood came and arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house, it could not shake it for it was founded upon a rock. But he that hears and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth or upon the sand against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The quality of any structure that can be built can be no greater than the strength of that structure's foundation. If the foundation of something is faulty, then it's only a matter of time before the structure falls. When I was growing up outside of Rochester in the 1980s, there was a shopping mall that was made in one of the suburbs. And it was supposed to be um, kind of the cutting edge, state of the art, uh, you know, facility of industry within that region and that area. And it was beautiful. I mean, they just went all out. They spared no expense. They dumped millions and millions of dollars into making this thing. And then they opened it, and everybody loved it. It was just like that's where people would go and shop, and it was brilliant. I mean, it was awesome, you know, like the Palisades Mall or something like that. But then what happened is a year after it was built, the north side of the mall sank 10 inches, (laughs) and all of the beautiful tiles were broken up and, you know, they had to actually close the thing down and and figure out a solution. And so they kind of patched it for a little while and got the, you know, go ahead to keep the thing moving and and they reopened it and, and, and people went back and they shopped. But every year the thing would sink a little bit more. And today the Irondequoit Mall, which was so fabulous in the day that it was made, you know what it's used for? Mall walkers. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> you're allowed to go there and exercise, but they can't, you can't have shoppers in there anymore. And, and, and the whole thing that was so carefully planned and so carefully paid for, now it's worthless because the foundation was faulty. The developer realized he could save a few dollars by not digging as deeply as he would need to to find solid bedrock, and thus uh, the whole thing became a waste. Now, Jesus takes that same idea and he applies it to our lives spiritually. And he talks about the success that he desires to have for each of us, that as we go from here to there, as we walk this kingdom path, that we would be successful and blessed. That's what he wants. But the key to that is that as we build our lives, what are we building it upon? Is our foundation right? What he gives to us is the three ingredients that are necessary for us to have a strong foundation. It's the trifecta of successful building. And that is this. Here they are. Ready? That you come, that you hear, and that you do. He that cometh to me and hears the things that I say and does them is like a man who built his house upon a rock. He dug deep And he went down to the very foundation, and that's where he began to build. And the result of that is that when the storm came, not if the storm came. See, a good foundation doesn't prevent the coming of the storm. It protects against the storm. That once the storm came and beat against that house, it couldn't fall because it was fastened to something that had a solid structure. On the other hand, 
There was a guy who didn't want to dig deep. He didn't want the foundation. He just wanted the appearance of all things. He wanted the luxuries of it. He wanted everyone to marvel at how great his life looked, but he didn't dig down deep and and bind it to the foundation, but rather he just did the appearance stuff, the outward stuff, nothing under the surface. And the result of that is that when the storm came, and again the storm will come, the house fell. And great was the fall of it, and great was the ruin. And so what we see in this is that there is a process in what God is building and what he's doing within our lives, and it's a process that we play a part in. See, there's a digging that has to take place if we're going to build upon the foundation. Jesus said that. He dug deep. And so what happens? We come to Christ, and all of a sudden, God begins to work within our lives, and he begins to remove things from us. Have you experienced that? (laughs) and and he's pruning and he's cutting away and it seems like lord i've come to you and i put my faith in you but it seems like all that's happening is i'm losing things i'm going backwards not forwards ever since i came to you i thought i would be growing in leaps and bounds and things would be going somewhere but it seems like i'm going backwards leaps and bounds and nothing is happening here's why because he's digging He's removing everything from the old life, the things that were slippery, that couldn't stand up to the storm. He's taking those things out. And once he gets to a place where he says, there, boom, we're at the bottom, we've hit bedrock, then he begins to rebuild our lives as we adhere to and we obey and we do things that he says. Our lives begin to build up and there's a fruitfulness and and now what he begins to build can last. On the other hand, If we don't like the process and we say, well, it's taking too long to do this whole dig out process and I don't like the the, the way it feels and I don't like what's happening in the whole thing, then we miss out on that and we say, well, I'll just compromise and I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I'll stoke the appearance a little bit. I'm not going to let him finish the work. I want to have a blessed life. And so I want my life blessed now, and I don't want um, him to work. I want him to build. And so I'm just going to do things, and I'm going to help God out in the whole thing. And the the outcome of that is that ultimately there's an eventual eventual fall. So what can we understand about the, the importance of a foundation within the life of a Christian? First of all, this is that foundation cannot be assessed by visual appearance. It can only be assessed by longevity. The strength of someone's foundation in their walk with God cannot be assessed by looking at their lives and making judgments based upon the things that are seen. The foundation is totally in the unseen. And so what happens is that a person wants a relationship with God. God, I want to know you. I've lived my life this long apart from you, and I no longer want to live that way. Lord, now I want to live my life for you. I want to have a relationship with God. But they want to do that, but they don't want to repent of their sins. They want to continue to keep those things within their life. They don't want God to remove the old life. They want to have a relationship with God, but they don't want to have a prayer life. Well, prayer is awkward, and I don't really know how to talk to God. And that's just kind of like, you know, one of those things that I don't do. I don't pray. You know, I I think, and, you know, I call that prayer. I say a couple prayers, but I don't really want to develop a, a conversation with God, a prayer life. I want a relationship with God, but I don't really want to read the Bible. I don't want to you know, get to become one of those Bible thumpers and always in it. Church is good, and I like learning it and hearing it taught, but I don't, I don't really want to do that. But I want God's blessing, and I want to know God, and I want to go to heaven. And so that's the way that you begin to build your Christian life. You mimic what you see in other people. You learn the language, and you say praise the Lord and hallelujah, and go into church this Sunday, and you sing the songs, and you raise your hand. All the visual outward things. 
But what happens is that there's no foundation in your life wherein now you've experienced God in the midst of him digging things out of your life. That's not there. You've prayed through things with God because you've been going through trials and storms in your life, and as you've talked to him about it, you've experienced the comfort that he gives in the middle of pain and trial. You've experienced the process of him as he roots things out, he replaces it with him, and we learn to rest even in the midst of difficulty. Then a storm comes, no foundation. You didn't ever learn those things. And so the storm comes into your life, and you say, forget it, I don't want to walk with God anymore. This isn't supposed to be like this. This isn't supposed to happen. No, that's exactly what happened. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world, and I work all things together for good. But if there's no foundation, there's no relationship with God. That principle holds true in every area of our lives. Because God is in and wants to be in every area of our lives. And so you want to have a marriage. But you don't want the foundation of what Jesus says the marriage is. Well, you want to be with another person. And you want to build a marriage upon the pleasure part of marriage. Or you want to build a marriage upon just having someone in your life and not maybe necessarily having it be the person that God wants in your life. I just want a person in my life. And so I'm just going to build something, go through the motions, put a ring on the finger, have a ceremony, we'll buy a house, we'll get jobs, we'll get a joint bank account, and we'll call it a marriage. But that's not what a marriage is. You look at what God said from the beginning, and it says that a man shall leave his father and mother. The two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, not man, let not man put asunder. And so there's a process there. I want a marriage that's built upon the rock of foundation. And so I look at what God says about marriage and what it is. And first of all, I must wait on him for the person that he's chosen for my life. Because to short-circuit that and just pick someone for the sake of having a spouse can be a disaster in a train wreck. And so I wait upon God for it. Then I meet that person. Now there's a process. Where are we going to build our relationship? Is it a relationship built on common goals? Is it a relationship built on mutual pleasure? Is it a relationship built on mutual interests? Or is it a relationship built upon a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what God wants. That's his desire for it. And so we dig deep and we get to know someone on a spiritual level. And we connect with them in the Lord, a threefold cord that's not quickly broken. And we put God first in that relationship and seek his kingdom first in it. And the love that we have towards that person isn't based upon a feeling, but rather upon a commitment. And so we grow with that person. And no matter what storm comes into that marriage, because storms are going to come into that marriage, it can't be shaken. Whether it be sickness or whether it be poverty or whether it be whatever, The storms beat on it but can't shake it because it's founded in the right place. And that applies to every area of our lives. Business, industry, the way we handle money, the way we deal with our children and our families, the way that we uh, do anything that God says something about. When we hear and do what he says, then we'll endure and our structure will be stable and it will last. The second and last thing about the foundation is this, and it's important, and it kind of dovetails with the last is that today's foundation turns into tomorrow's fruit. Here's the point of that. Is that God is constantly building and sowing new things into our lives. Where we are right now in our walk with Christ is where we are. But God is constantly doing new things and taking us into new territory. Meaning that on every step of this journey, there's a new foundation that's being laid. God is doing new things within our lives. And so it's important that we be not people that simply say, well, God, whatever. I just want it. 
But we say, God, whatever you're doing right now, let the foundation be secure. And may what I do and how I build be according to what you say so that what you're sowing and planting and building within my life might last. And the quality of our lives in any area is only going to be as good as the foundation of our lives in that area. And he says that the key to that is that there is obedience, is that we listen to the things that he says and that we then do the things that, we, we, that he uh, tells us to do. And so the sermon kind of ends right where it began. It began with blessing, and it ends with blessing. His desire is that our lives would be filled and fruitful and that they would be blessed. And he gives to us everything that we need that we might do it. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit that we might walk in the obedience that he's called us to. And he says that our success will be sure and our fruit will last. And that brings him glory and it blesses us. Amen? Next week we'll get into chapter 7. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would take the things that we uh, have looked at in these past few weeks and that they would be more to us than words on a page or concepts or ideals. But Lord, that they would build us up to be a spiritual house. And that you would work in us, Lord, that sound structure. That we would be called children of our Father. And that we would bring you honor and glory in all that we do. So Lord, would you help us? Would you fill us and sustain us? Would you take us, Lord, further in our walk than we are presently? And Lord, would you cause us to know you in a fuller and richer, richer way? Thank you, Lord, that you finish what you begin and that you're with us every step of it, Lord. So give us discernment, give us wisdom. And may our lives bring you pleasure. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.